church family, we're going to come to the Word of God, and sometimes I often say, and today will be one of those messages, uh, buckle up, okay? Because we're going to go through uh, quite a bit. I'm celebrating this morning because we're moving out of Genesis chapter 1 into Genesis chapter 2. We've been a number of weeks in Genesis 1 in this series, now we're moving into Genesis chapter 2. We've been looking at God's answers to life's most important questions. We've been talking about, as a church family, just exactly how God's truth speaks into our culture today and how we're people that are led not by our culture, but led according to to God's word. And last week we were talking about humanity. We're in the section of Genesis that has a lot to say about who we are as those whom God has created. A lot to say about humanity. We talked about gender and sexuality somewhat last week. And we talked about how our culture today says gender is fluid. And it's not tied to your biological sex. You are who you feel you, you are. But how God's word says, no, no, no. Gender and sex are two sides of the same coin. You can't divorce the fact that a, a man is biologically uh, a man and that a woman is biologically a woman. We talked about what that means. And yet how today... That runs contrary to culture. And I want to share with you two things. Lest you think that living in light of the truth of God, um, that these things that we're talking about aren't impacting the church today. Two quick examples. One popped into my newsfeed just this morning. As I was going through my prayer and preparation, I often will just click over to the news right before I transition to come here just to be like, did I miss anything? You know, did anything happen overnight or something like that? And I came across a newsfeed of a story in Great Britain where... I'll just read you the summary of the story. In a unanimous decision handed down this week, an employment tribunal in England determined that a government employee's sincerely held belief in Genesis 127, that is that God created them male and female, is incompatible with human rights and dignity. And so a man in England lost his job working for the government because he would not refer to people according to their preferred pronoun, but would refer to them as their biological sex actually was. And he said his grounds for doing that was because God has made you either male or female. He hasn't made you something other than that. So he lost his job, and a tribunal in Britain that heard his case said, and I quote, his view is incompatible with human rights and dignity. That's what they said. Now, just lest you think this is stuff that's going on across the pond, this past summer, our state assembly voted on and passed a resolution that was then voted on and ratified by our state senate called ACR 99. Here's the summary of ACR 99. This is a resolution that now is in effect and accepted by the state of California. This resolution calls on religious leaders and others with moral influence to affirm homosexuality and transgenderism and to accept that Christian efforts to help people with unwanted same-sex attraction or gender confusion are ineffective, unethical, and harmful. Our state senate and state assembly passed this resolution. How many of you know that this happened? Yeah. Our state says this is what we believe as a governing entity over our state. Now, a resolution is not law, but you know what follows resolutions? Laws. And so already the government of the state that you and I live in 
says that when I or any other religious leader speaks to somebody who has same-sex attraction or believes they're not the gender that they are, that for me to say what God says about it is unethical and harmful to that individual. Like, folks, this is where we're at. This is in a future time. Do you know what the implications of this resolution are for Christians and not just me? Our government says that for me to hold the view, for you to hold the view that somebody should not respond to their feelings about same-sex attraction or feelings about their gender is unethical and harmful. The Bible says that in the latter days they will call evil good and good evil. So, look, I'm just going to be totally transparent with you. I've said this, I said this the first hour. Um, What will probably be the thing that I'm called to and the other pastors on staff are called to account that will be viewed one day as criminal is not preaching Jesus Christ as Lord. It's just simply saying what God says about sex and gender. Like, if I'm still in ministry 30 years from now, the way this sucker's going... um, It's going to be criminal to preach the message that I just preached last week, to just even say what the Bible says. It already is in Britain. A guy lost his job just because he said, I believe what the Bible says about gender and sex. So does this discussion matter? Now, this doesn't mean that we beat down and we go hard against those who are struggling with these things. It just means we show compassion, but we must speak the truth. And we have to offer hope. This is the world that we're living in. We've got to know these things. We've got to be aware of what's happening in our, on our culture. Because I'm telling you, the fact that in the first hour, only 5% of the church knew about ACR. And this hour, as I looked out, looked out to you, it's probably more like 2% knew about it. Do you see how these things are happening and we're completely unaware? So don't, don't be surprised when I stand before you and say, oh, now it's criminal for me to say what I'm about to say. Because we're, we're on the road. It's already, it's already there. Um, do we despair? We don't despair. Jesus Christ is Lord of all, and he's on his throne. And uh, he wins. And he will redeem one day. So good morning. Hey, happy day to you guys. So glad you could be here this morning. That's what's going to not make the audio online, no. All right, so, so where do we go? Let's jump in this morning. Genesis chapter 2. Uh, I'm just going to say it straight straight out because of the introduction of these things. Um, now I'm going to get into the meat of the message. We're going to go just a little bit longer, but I think it's going to be worth, worthwhile. If you have to fall asleep, go ahead. I won't call you out. All right, here we go. Um, Genesis chapter 2. What I'm going to do is I'm going to work through Genesis chapter 2. It's going to be a retelling of something that's already happened in Genesis chapter 1. And so as we read through it, there's going to be parts of Genesis chapter 2 that are going to seem familiar, they're going to seem kind of redundant, and then there's going to be some things that weren't mentioned in chapter 1 about humanity that you're going to be like, wait, that sounds to contradict. It's not there to contradict. I want you to picture this as we read through Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 1 gives one description of the creation of humanity. Genesis chapter 2 gives another perspective on the creation of humanity. It's kind of like a house. Imagine somebody comes and shows you a picture of the house, and then somebody shows you a schematic of the same house. Which one is the true representation, right? 
One's a picture, one's a schematic. They're just trying to communicate different things. So Genesis 1 is more like a painting. It's more of a poem about the creation of the world. Genesis chapter 2 is now kind of more of a schematic. Here's the, here's the nitty-gritty. Here's the details of how this happened. So we're going to pick it up in verse 4 because actually verses 1 through 3 kind of fit more with chapter 1. It's just a reminder that the chapters and verses that are broken down, uh, they're not inspired. They were put into the Bible in the 16th century, and they're beneficial and they're helpful. Um, the words are inspired, but the numbers aren't always, and we can see that in where the chapter breaks. So verse 4, here we go. Ready? These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man from dust, uh, the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became what? A living creature. Boom, here it is. The creation of man. Details now given that weren't given previously. One of the first things I want to highlight about this is look at how detailed these verses are, verses 4 through 7. They're rooting us in the fact that this creation of man took place in history at a specific time. It's not trying to paint a picture. It's not trying to be poetic. It's saying, look it, you know, this took place before the, the, before the earth was fully cultivated. The, the, there was no bush of of the field, and, and there was no small plant yet, and, and then it says that there was a firmament, there was, there was water coming up from, from the ground. The author of Genesis is saying, this is real, it took place in time and history. And then what took heaven, or what took place? Verse 7, God created man, and he formed him from the dust of the ground. This is huge. What's being said here? Unlike anything else in creation, God spoke things into existence. But with man, he got his hands dirty. He, he in, this, in this description, reached down into the dust of the ground and he began to form man. Do you know what imagery is trying to be communicated to us here? It's that of a potter in the clay. Molding man like an artist exactly the way that he wanted him. And, and what the author is wanting to make known to us, once again, is something we've already seen. And that is, man is a unique creation of God. I can't say this enough. Man's a unique creation of God. Of God. It's further emphasized by the fact that God does what? He breathes into man the breath of life. Now, animals breathe, we breathe, but it's only said of man that God gave him his breath. There's a lot that can be said about this. Scholars, they hypothesize about what that fully means. I say, let's go with at minimum what it means. It means God did that for nobody else but for us. He wants us to know that we're uniquely his uniquely made in his image. He gives us his breath. He doesn't just form us. But then let's continue on, verse, verse 8. The text goes on and it tells us, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What's, what's the deal with this? Well, God creates man. He makes man special. And because man is special, he also creates a special place for man. Man is special, so God creates a special place for man. He, he puts him in the garden. And so man was given by God, if you're taking notes, everything necessary to sustain his life. 
I care about you. You're specially mine, so I'm giving you a garden. I'm putting you there so you're going to have everything you need to sustain your life. And there's this little note here. Uh, I probably don't have time to say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. Look at man begins in his perfection in a garden. Yet at the end of all things, when God makes the new heavens and the new earth, do you know where humanity finds its final place to be? Is it in a garden? No. It's actually in a city. The city of God comes down out of heaven, and heaven and earth are joined together, together, Revelation tells us. This is fascinating. I love nature. Often we'll say, oh, I feel so close to God when I'm in, in nature, right? It, uh, I feel so close to God, actually, when other people aren't around me. <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I'm not distracted. Yet, when it's all said and done, and I think this shows that, that God ultimately completes the mission of humanity with him, God comes down and we reside forever in a city, not in a garden, in a city. Cities today are often stinky, they're smelly, you know, there's crime and all those, those kind of things. That's because of the brokenness of our world. But when you take sin out of the equation, the city of God is going to be the most beautiful, most pleasant thing you will have ever experienced in all your life. And that's where we end up. So we start in a garden, we're going to end in a city. That one was for free. Let's go on to verse 10. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first river is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedulam and Onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gahon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. What's going on here? Why are we given these details? Because, again, from the earliest pages of the Bible, when it wants to make itself presented as history, it presents itself as history. It gives the geological markers for where this garden was. Some people have asked me, where's the Garden of Eden today? I'm like, it doesn't exist anymore. Why? Because of the flood of Noah, right? It washed the sucker away. In fact, two of those rivers no longer exist. Today, only the Tigris and the Euphrates are still there. And yet the people of God... They would have known of the Tigers and the Euphrates. They would have known these two things still exist. So the Bible wants us to know that man was created at a specific time and a specific place. But then verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to what, folks? Work it and what? Keep it. This is important. I create man unique. I give him a special place, but I also give him a task. Man is supposed to work. Did you know that? Man is supposed to work. Work is not a part of the curse. Toil, struggle, thorns, thistles, the things that make work unpleasant, that's the result of sin. But work's not part of the curse. Man's supposed to work. And we see this sociologically, and we see this even psychologically. People who are able to work and yet don't do so have far, far greater signs of depression, and there is more disunity in communities where that's not taking place anywhere else. Why? Because work's part of the design. God gives us everything to provide for life, but we're supposed to cultivate it and keep it. But then there's something else. Verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. From the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. How many of you have heard that verse before? Are you familiar with this verse? What's going on here? This is the first command explicitly given to the man. And why does God do this? Why does he give this command? 
The weight of what we see here is going to be fully known in chapter 3. But what we can say very clearly is this, man's ability, humanity's ability to, to flourish and thrive in the world is predicated on his obedience to the word of God. God is tying his command to life. He says, if you obey my command, if you do not eat of this tree, you will live. If you eat of it in disobedience to my command, you will die. In your notes, it's very simply this. Man is to obey what God commands in order to have life. You cannot have life without obedience to God's commands. You want to know why death exists in our world today? It's because ultimately man will disobey God's command. God is the creator, designer of all things, knows what is best for humanity and for human flourishing. He knows what will ultimately lead to destruction and death. And so he guards humanity against it. He says, I'm giving you a command to obey so that you know that obedience to my words will always lead to life. Disobedience will lead to death. If you're a parent, you know the reality of this. You know that in your wisdom, you know more than your young children. And you know that certain behavior, certain things that they might do will harm them. And so what do we say? Don't stick the fork in the light socket, right? Don't run out into the road. Watch where you're going. And we're telling them these things because we know what will happen if they do these things. And yet when they do them and they get harmed, we come and we say, see, we knew. In the same way, God says, I know. You need my words to lead and to guide you. If you reject them, you're inviting death. And so man... All of us were to obey the command of God if we're going to experience life. It's why Jesus would come and he would restore everything and he'd say, listen, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through, through me. We need him. We need his word. We need to walk in obedience. It's our catechism question for this morning. Our catechism question literally calls us and says, what are we supposed to obey? What command must we obey? But the text goes on, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, now here's the heart of the message. Then the Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for for him. Two things from these verses. This is where the remainder of our moments are going to be together. First off, what's happening in these verses? God miraculously brings all the animals before Adam. For what purpose? Who wants to say it? What, what's, what's he supposed to do with the animals? Pet them? No. Name them, right? He's supposed to name the animals. Why? What's the purpose behind naming? We already talked about this, so I'm not going to get into it that deeply. Man has authority over all created things. That's the point of this. I'm bringing the animals before you so that you can know that they are yours. You're responsible for them. You are authority over them. We weren't made for the animals. The animals were made to be, will be for us, for us to have authority over them. And that's why God brings them in this miraculous way. Now, some people say, well, how did he do it? What were their names? I don't know. I wasn't there. That's not the point. The point is 
Adam and humanity has authority over the animals. But there was another reason for him bringing the animals before Adam. Look at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. By bringing all the animals before Adam, I don't think Adam was an idiot, okay? He had a pure mind. It was unstained by sin. And one after one, the animals go past him and he names them. What do you think Adam noticed with all the animals that kept going past? There were pairs. There's male, there's female. I don't think he was so slow. And so I think eventually he probably got to the point where he was like, hey, hey, what's going on here? There's just, there's just one of this. And it literally says in the text that it, there was not a helper found suitable for him. With the animals coming before him and the naming of those animals, Adam becomes aware of, we become aware of this. Now, I'm about to say something that all the ladies in the church should, should want to say amen to. Okay, guys, don't, don't get upset with them when they do. You ready for this? Here's the point. Humanity is incomplete with only male representation. All right? Okay, yeah, so, uh, the women were like, amen. You know, they're just, just, just quiet, quiet, quiet. Mm, hallelujah, praise Jesus. Uh, now, this comment isn't meant to be disparaging for us. It doesn't belittle man doesn't belittle us as the male species. This is just pointing to God's design. God helps Adam to be aware of this fact by bringing the animals before him. Man needed a helper fit for him. By himself, Adam was incapable of fully bearing the design of God and the image of God. Remember humanity's mission, fill the earth and rule as image bearers. Adam by himself could not do it. He needed someone he needed a helper fit for him. And so what does God do? Look at verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed its place up with flesh. And the rib that the Lord had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This is at last bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Then the narrator makes this comment. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Man, by himself, the male of our species by itself could not accurately represent the image of God. So what does God do? God created woman as a helper fit for man. He created woman as a helper fit for, for man. And verse 22 says something very profound. Where does woman come from? Does it come from the dust of the ground? Does it come from the sea? Does it come from another animal? No. God takes part of the man out of him and fashions the woman as a helper fit for him. Why do you think that's significant? It's significant because when Adam wakes up and he recognizes, I feel a little lighter, <laughs> all right? Recognizes that when he sees the woman, this is that last bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. We, we have the same nature. And so one of the things that we must see here is that whatever it means for a woman to be the helper fit for man, it means at minimum that men and women are of the same nature and therefore equal in value and importance. The woman that was created is made of the same substance, the same stuff. 
bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. When we think about male and female, we as a church, we as the people of God say, they are equal in nature, equal therefore in value and worth. They are different, there's no doubt, but we must say they have the same nature and therefore are equal together. And then we come to this. Once we know that they're of the same nature, then we can say, what does it mean to be the helper? What does it mean for a woman to be the helper of man? That kind of has some negative connotations, or at least it has a connotation of subordination. When somebody says, oh, this person's my helper. We often think of when you hire a craftsman to work at your house. They'll come to your house, and they're going to do some work, and they're like, oh, here, here's my helper. This is, you know, this is Bill. He's going he's gonna to help me out. And you're like, well, all right, the craftsman, you're going to do the real work, right? The helper's just going to carry the bags, whatever needs to be in. Or we think about helper like when we're doing a task at home and our kids are little and, and we're like, oh, your daddy's a little helper, your mommy's a little helper. Helper doesn't mean anything like that here. When it says that the woman is man's helper, did you know that, that the primary way in which this word is used throughout the entirety of the Old Testament is when God is referred to as the helper for Israel. Let me just show you one small example. This is in the book of Psalms, Psalm 33. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help, our shield. Same word that's being referred to when we talk about the woman being the helper for the man. All right, hope we know the answer to this. Uh, God stronger or weaker than the people of Israel? <laughs> what is it? What is he, stronger or weaker? stronger. So so definitely when when woman is being referred to as the helper for man, that is not a term that implies that she is weaker than man, at least in her overall function or in man's need of her. She is at at least equal to or stronger than. The idea of helper is that man needs neither stronger nor weaker, but someone who is able to do what man cannot. In fact, here's a definition for helper. Biblically speaking, it's one who provides what is lacking in another, one who can do what the other alone cannot do. This is the biblical understanding of who a woman is in relationship to a man. The Bible not only gives us reason for the value of human life, but the Bible also gives us clear teaching on how we as the sexes are to view one another, how we as the sexes are to engage one another. Women are not second-class parts of humanity. In fact, there's been this historical notion that women are weaker than men. Biologically speaking, across the board, as far as muscle mass and those things are concerned, yes, men and women are different. They are weaker physically than than men. In fact, did you know that men have a thousand percent more testosterone than women? A thousand percent. The typical man. You want to know why guys are more competitive, right? Like, that just gives you one idea. But does that imply that they are the weaker of the two? That's not what is being said here of the woman. The woman is different from the man, but is a co-equal with him. And the woman has what the man lacks. And the man has what the woman lacks. And they together complement one another. It says here that, that man needed a helper fit for him. The best picture the Bible gives us, I think, of this is a picture of, of a puzzle. 
I think this is what you should image in your mind when you think about man and woman. It's, it's that both these things, it's not that one puzzle piece is better than the other puzzle piece. It's that if you want to get the full picture, you need both of them put together. There's this complementary nature between man and woman. And we as the people of God should see this. We should recognize this. Now, the way in which we're different, see, sometimes we look at our differences and we imply, well, well, that's a stronger person, that's a weaker person based on their differences. The Bible comes and says, men and women differ in function and role. But differing in your function and differing in your role does not mean that one is greater than the other. It's a difference of responsibilities. Think about this. We're going to talk about this next week when we talk about marriage. But it says that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And in his incarnation, submitted himself to the will of the Father. Is Jesus Christ equal with the eternal Father? The answer is yes. Does Jesus Christ fulfill a different role than the Father? Yes, he does. But is one more worthy of praise than the other in the Godhead? No. So there's different roles, different functions, in the same way men and women are different, but we uphold the value of both. Now, some people can hear what I'm saying, and, and they can think of the, the Me Too movement that's been kind of happening. You were all familiar with the Me Too movement? And, and some people can say, wait a second, are, are, we, are, we, are we getting like feminists here? Are we going to think, no, 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 listen, listen. We don't need, as the people of God, the Me Too movement, to wake us up to the reality of abuses that have been done against women, nor do we need the Me Too movement to, to waken us up to the fact that women and men are equal in value and worth in the eyes of God and should be there for one another. The Bible already says all that. We as the people of God above everybody should strive to see human beings flourish in the roles and the functions that God has given them and to never belittle or to cut down that's why I think Adam, when he sees the woman for the first time, remember the words, right? He says, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. I've heard some pastors say to this, he called her woman because he was like, whoa, man, right? And I'm like, stupid. Um, because <laughs> this passage has nothing to do about sexual or physical attraction. When, when Adam sees the woman for the first time, there's no doubt she was beautiful. But to think that that's why he said this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, what is he really coming and doing? He's saying, finally, finally, I have someone who fulfills what I lack. That's the heart behind what Adam is saying here to just run to a woman's physical beauty as the reason why Adam was finally happy that a woman was created goes completely against what the text is emphasizing. There's no doubt she was beautiful. There's no doubt he was attracted to her. But he's saying, I have the companionship and I have the person who fills up what I'm lacking. Everything else in creation has some of that. But now, now we can fulfill the mission that God has given us. Not just sexually, but relationally. Because this is who God has made us to be. If there's a theological takeaway from the text, and I'm going to bring it to some practical application in our church today, it's this. Men and women, 
were created by God to have a complementary existence to be expressed sexually, relationally, and in their roles. This is, this is what God calls us to. This is what Genesis 2 is saying. Listen, God has created us to have a complementary existence, and we express that sexually, relationally, and in their roles. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on sexually except to say this. There's a reason why the commentator says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Because sexually, you're only to experience the complementary nature of biological and male and female in the context and the covenant of marriage. That's God's design. There and only, only there. But as far as these other things relationally and in their roles, that doesn't have to be done within marriage. In fact, for all the single people that are here today, don't hear me say that your only value and worth and the fullness of who you are can be found in the confines of marriage. Because last time I checked, Jesus Christ, you've heard me say this, was a single person I'm not going to stand before you and say he wasn't the fullest human being that ever lived, and yet he was single. He was the fullest human being who ever lived, and he was single. He could still live out who God had called him to be. Why? Because we as the people of God still experience male and female relationships with one another even outside the covenant of marriage. And in the church, we should be the place where we know how that works and functions. We should model what it looks like. What is the primary way in which men and women are referred to when it comes to the New Testament letters. In the early church, how are we referred to when we're spoken of, when we're talking about one another? What's the language used? Go ahead, you can say it. Brothers and sisters. You're not referred to as husbands and wives when it comes to the relationship in the church. We're to live as brothers and sisters in the Lord. In fact, Peter says it best. He says, listen, that you are a chosen priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We're the new people of God. We've been redeemed, and, and in the church is the place that we get to express what this should actually look like and how we engage with one another. And I gotta land this plane, but, but I'm gonna do it by referring to something in your notes. How many of you have your notes with you? Hopefully you, you've seen that. We as a church have put together with the help of some other churches that we've looked to for help on this, a statement on the roles of men and women in the life and ministry of Valley Center Community Church. I'm praying that you would read through this, and if you want to know more of the fullness of this, at the Welcome Center, just out there, we have a fuller paper that, that gives some scripture that goes along with this. But we put this in today because we want you to see how we believe God has called us to engage as male and female within the life of the church. I'm just going to highlight a few things. I want to read this with you so you know what it looks like. Number one, we affirm that both men and women have been created in the image of God and are entitled to the privileges and held accountable to the responsibilities that come with reflecting our creator. This is what we believe the Bible teaches. We deny, as a church family, that either gender has been given or is entitled to greater dignity in society the home, the church, or the kingdom of God. We want to live these things out. We affirm that both men and women are needed and necessary for the health and ministry of the church. Godly men and women should be visible partners in the corporate life of the church, deploying their diverse gifts for the good of the body. Simply put, all Christians contribute to the ministry of the church. 
We deny that the church can flourish without brotherly, sisterly partnership. We deny that a church can exist in which men flourish and women do not or vice versa. Can I get an amen to that one? This is just some of what it looks like for us to live this out. I want to invite you to read through the rest of this. But one of the things that we believe as a church that God has clearly ordained is that elders and pastors are responsible in their role to shepherd and oversee the flock. And that that is a role only reserved for qualified men. This does not mean that women do not have worth and value. It just simply means this is a role identified for men. But what it also, though, though means is that all of us, whether male or female, if we are not an elder, a pastor in the church, which is reserved for qualified men, all of us still engage in the life and the ministry of the body. Everything else is open to the participation and involvement of either of the sexes within the church. And this, this even includes the role of deacons within our, our church. Currently, we don't have any female deacons, but we believe that God's word gives us and tells us that women can even serve within that function. And we're hoping in the next little bit to actually identify and recognize those women who are already actually serving in a deacon role to take on those responsibilities. Why? Because to serve as a deacon is to not exercise authority and, and leadership, but to be an example of, of service. Listen, we are a church that ultimately wants to be guided by this. His word not changing cultural preferences, but his word. Because when we do, we believe that people flourish and ultimately our God is most glorified. So Lord, help us as we look to do that. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to you today, we want to live these things out according to your design and your plan and not our own. So Lord, would you, would you help us as a church? We're not perfect in these things. We want to we understand better what it looks like to live in this complementary existence to value each other, to affirm the differences in the gifts, to serve as co-equals. Lord, because as we do that, we believe that people then flourish according to your design and the church is most glorified. And so help us live out, Lord, what your word commands and calls us to by the spirit that you've given. We pray and we ask this in Christ's name. And all God's people said, amen.